seven or eight weeks just really walking through some of the the issues that we're trying to process as a church family based on COVID-19 and political issues and cultural issues and things that, that we are wrestling with. I think it's finally time, don't you think, to get back to the book of Romans? And so I want to invite you to turn to the book of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. One of the great mysteries and, of course, controversies in recent days concern the origin of COVID-19. I don't know how many of you saw the interview just a few days ago on Fox News with the Chinese woman who made this bold and audacious claim. She said simply, COVID-19 was developed and unleashed intentionally. Now, whether or not that statement is rooted in fact or not, I have no idea. I'm just telling you what was reported. This thing we know for sure. We have seen this horrible virus spread around the globe, infecting nearly, get this, 31 million people and taking the lives of almost 1 million people. I checked this morning, right just half an hour ago, this deadly disease has killed, as of 20 minutes ago, 957,633 people. The death toll in America, as of 20 minutes ago, was 199,268. My suspicion is by the end of the day, the death toll in America will reach 200 Now, there is another kind of virus. This is a virus we don't hear an awful lot about. We certainly don't hear about this virus on the news, but I think, and I think you'll agree, it is is much more controversial than COVID-19, and I'm referring to the virus of sin. Now, unlike the coronavirus, we do know its origin, and we have been able to track the spread of the virus. Unlike COVID-19, the virus of sin has invaded the lives of every single person on the planet. There is simply no way to develop an immunity to the virus of sin. Here's what we discover. In our culture, in our world, In our country, there are many people who who downplay the virus of sin. One of the warnings I give every outgoing high school student who plans to study psychology is this. Both in the Christian university and the secular university, you're going to hear this. Maybe not in every Christian university, but every secular university, you're going to hear this, that the The premise of psychology is that man is basically good. I'll guarantee you, you walk into the University of Washington, Washington State University, U of O, Oregon State, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, you name the university, you're going to be faced with this presupposition that the premise of psychology, by the way, psychology is the study of the soul. And the person who studies the soul will be faced with this proposition that man is basically good. Let me say this, nothing could be further from the truth. 
that man is basically good. Some downplay the effects of the sin virus. They may say they, they admit there is a sin virus, but they downplay it. And do you know where we see the, the sin virus downplayed for the most part? In the local church. In the local church. Because we will see this virus has wreaked havoc. That is the sin virus has wreaked havoc in the cosmos and will continue to do so until Christ returns. Do you remember the days of cartoons when cartoons were cool? How many of you remember when, when, when you would wake up at 7 o'clock in the morning on Saturday for one reason, to watch cartoons? Those are the days when cartoons were worth watching. Do you remember, what was that guy that used to spin around? What was his name? The Tasmanian Devil. You remember that guy? Right, he'd spin around. That is exactly what the sin virus has been doing from the point of the fall of man and will until Jesus returns. That's the image I have in mind of the sin virus. I want you to think for a moment about the world in which we live. This is a world filled with the creative genius of God. We live just a few miles away from Artist Point where I am told that people from all over the world come to hike the trails on Artist Point. The world is filled with the creative genius of God. This is a world that is teeming with butterflies and orca whales and koala bears and bulldogs. This is a world that is literally packed with beauty. From the Rocky Mountains to Mount Everest, from the Amazon River to the depths of the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, and the Indian Ocean and beyond. This is a world that is loaded with stunning artwork that points to the master artist. And what is his name? His name is Jehovah God. He is the creator. I want to have you hold your finger just for a moment in Romans chapter 5 and go all the way to the beginning of God's book, to the book of Genesis. I want to have you look with me in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And as God completed his work of creation, it is Moses who pens these words in Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he made. And I'm convinced this is something that some evangelicals forget in our sin-stained world. He saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. Do you believe that? That God, the creator, he fashioned the cosmos and his handiwork was good. Look in Genesis chapter 2. Moses looks back on the, the creative genius of God and he says this beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Move forward to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. 
Here the Lord God took the man and he put the man by the name of Adam in the garden to, this is key, to work it and keep it. Will you say that with me? He put the man in the garden to work it and keep it. That is foundational this morning. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The word work means to to labor. Men, how many of you, raise your hand, if you love to work? Don't be embarrassed. Man, did you know that God hardwired men to work? We are placed in the cosmos to to work, to, to labor, to make things grow. Men are called to a ministry of nurturing and cultivating and tending and building up and guiding and they're called to rule. They're called to rule. But notice also the word used in this passage is that he is called to work, but he is also called to keep, to keep it. That is to protect and sustain the progress that has already been achieved. Men, are you listening, men? This is the big challenge for men. It's not Father's Day, but it should be. Men are called to guard. Men are called to keep safe. Men are called to watch over. Men are called to maintain that which God has put before him. It was Richard Phillips in his book, The Masculine Mandate, who uttered these words. He said, to be a man, by the way, for all the men about ready to hear this quote, if your wife is here, she's, she's, she's going to be licking her chops at this quote. Like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Talk about Tasmania devil. Wow. The women will be excited. And for those of you who are young women and you are single, this is the kind of man you need to track down. Here's what Dr. Phillips says. To be a man is to stand up and be counted when there is danger or evil. God does not desire for men to stand idly and allow harm or permit wickedness to exert itself. Rather, Philip says, we are called to keep others safe within all the covenant relationships we enter. In our families, our presence is to make our wives and children feel secure and at ease. And all the women said, amen. Guys, that's our challenge. At church, men are to stand for truth and godliness against the encroachment of worldliness and error. In society, men are to take our places as men who stand up against evil and who defend the nation from the threat or any danger. If you've been paying attention to the news, you will know that one man who has done this in a very public way is a man who has been my hero for over 30 years. His name is Dr. John MacArthur. Dr. MacArthur is standing in the gap for the sake of truth. We are called to work. We are called to keep. And you'll see on the screen that the words service and leadership are are words that nicely correspond to the commands to work 
and to keep. Listen to Richard Phillips again. He says, men are called to be leaders and servants. Do you see it there? Leaders and servants in the ultimate cause of displaying God's glory and bearing the fruit of God's love in real relationships. That, Phillips says, is the masculine mandate. To be spiritual men placed in real world God-defined relationships as servants under God to bear God's fruit, how? By serving and leading. And so look at Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. God commands Adam, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall what? You shall surely die. And so the Lord God, as you know, makes a a helper for Adam by the name of Eve, and the two come together in the very first marriage. I'm not being flippant when I say this or sacrilegious, but please remember that the first marriage was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Homosexual marriage, or as one writer refers to it, homosexual mirage is a sham. It is not biblical. It is an abomination to the living God. Now move forward in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we begin reading in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Eve, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired and make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate and the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves Loincloths. Here we discover how sin entered into God's good creation. And Paul speaks of this in our passage. And the title of the message that I've already referred to numerous times is the sin virus. And so turn back, if you would, to Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. And I want to invite you to stand to your feet with that long introduction in place as we read Verses 12, 13, and 14. This is God's authoritative word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. 
But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Lord, thank you for uh, bringing each person here, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. We thank you for the chance to stand out of respect for your authoritative, inerrant, infallible word and how, how many times we as a people have forgotten that your word is authoritative and infallible and inerrant. Certainly as a, as a nation, we forget it every day. But today as we come together as the people of God, we affirm together that your word is truth and that your word is binding on our lives, on our conscience, on every aspect of our lives, including our future. And so, Lord, as we learn and discover more about the sin virus today, may you give us eyes to see the importance of this doctrine. And as we conclude, may we see the cure, the one and only cure for the sin virus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to start by putting it like this. If you don't know about a virus, you won't seek a cure, right? Yesterday, my wife and I were at Costco, and I saw the sign that said, get your flu shot, and in this crazy time that we're living in, uh, I'll admit, I, I, I want to do everything I can to boost my immunity by taking vitamin C and taking a multivitamin, do all, all these kind of different things, Right? A part of that component, I think, is to get my flu shot every year. Some of you may disagree. That's fine. But I said to my wife, I said, maybe we ought to get our flu shot. And so we, we did that. Simply put, if you don't know about a virus, you will never seek a cure. If you don't know about a virus, a, a vaccine will be of little interest to you. In our passage this morning in Romans 5, Paul explains in, in clear terms about the entrance of sin into God's good creation. And here's what we will discover. We will discover that Paul's argument is, is very, very precise. In fact, it's so precise, we're going to take two weeks to unpack verses 12, 13, and 14. Paul begins, as you see, in verse 12 with that all-important word. It's the word therefore. We've talked much about this in recent weeks. And it's as if he, he pauses for a moment as he pens the biblical text, for he has unpacked a, a wealth of theological truth and treasure in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. He has shown us the reality of, of where we stand as sinners apart from grace in verses 1 to 11. He has showed us the riches of, of who we are now because of grace. But now, in verse 12, he wants the Roman Christians to know, he wants each of us who are Christ followers to know and to dig down deeply into the pit of depravity. And he begins by highlighting what I like to refer to as the trajectory of the sin virus. That is the main heading that will guide our, our whole time together this morning, the trajectory of the sin virus. 
And I want you to see three very important points that help to draw out the trajectory of the sin virus. Before we look at those three points, I want to define sin. I find it very, very important that we have a biblical understanding of what sin is. The first thing we need to do is to throw out the unbiblical view of sin, right? Sin, as many people understand it, is simply doing bad stuff. Or, as a six-year-old, don't be a bad little boy. That is not the definition of sin. Sin, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, is any want or conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's a powerful and a short definition of sin. John Frame, a man who has had a a weighty, weighty influence in my life for really over 25 years now, says this in one of his books, quote, sin is radical disruption in the core of our being. He says, in sin, we turn from God's good commandments, his kingdom and glory, faith and love. It embraces rebellious disobedience, the kingdom of Satan and evil attitudes. You say, for your six-year-old, sin is not just doing bad things or being a bad little boy or a bad little girl. Sin embraces rebellious disobedience, the kingdom of Satan, and evil attitudes. Do you see how that's a far cry from taking the cookie? You're rebellious. Your child is rebellious. And mom and dad, you are rebellious. And I am rebellious. It's our nature. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this of sin. Sin is an attitude of rebellion and hatred to God and a refusal to obey his holy law. Hold your finger in Romans 5 and go with me to the book of Galatians chapter 5, if you would. Galatians chapter 5. And read with me beginning in verse 19. Here the apostle Paul unpacks what he refers to as as the deeds of the flesh. And he says this, now the works of the flesh are evident. Porneia, this is a Greek word, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And then Paul adds this very important statement, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, when we fail to be satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ, we commit sin. This is perhaps, in the words of John Piper, the most helpful and and simple definition for sin I've ever found, and it's right here. That when we refuse to be satisfied with all that God is for me in Christ, we commit sin. Probe deeper with me. It's important that we recognize sin for what it is. At its very heart, John Frame says this, sin, and this is something, this would be kind of 
a fun thing, moms, to put on your refrigerators, right? Be something fun to put in your child's lunchbox when he or she can go back to school. Ready? Sin, Frame says, is irrational. See, what does that mean? Sin is irrational. Why, John Frame says, would anyone turn from the beauty and joy of covenant life with God and embrace its opposite? Answer? That's crazy. That's nuts. That's insane. Or, as Frame says, why would anyone think he could succeed in opposing God's omnipotent power. Sinners haven't a ghost of a chance to defeat God, yet sinners embrace sin with reckless enthusiasm. And if you don't, if you're not convinced of that, go home tonight and turn on the evening news and watch what's happening around our country. In verse 12, I want to focus your attention on three key verbs. And I did something a little bit different this morning. I wanted to show you in in my Bible that I study from the focus on those three words. They're all circled. I want you to focus in on these verbs, came and spread and sinned. And I want you to see three very important clarifiers when we refer to the trajectory of sin. Number one, This is all in verse 12. I want you to remember that sin begins with one man. Sin begins with one man. Paul says, therefore, just as sin, here's the word, came into the world through one man. Let's look at the first point there on the screen, Tom. That sin begins with one man. And the word we're focusing on here is the word came. It's the word came. Now, I think you'd agree with me that that word came, it's, you probably aren't all that impressed with the word, right? It's, he came, she came, it came. It's a very, it sounds like kind of a passive word. Do you agree with me? It came. It just kind of arrived on the scene. Here's what the Greek word should be translated. It means to enter the ranks. Therefore, just as sin entered the ranks through one man. But here's a better rendition. The word came means invaded. Invaded. And you see how as we, as we look at the, the biblical text and, and study the original language, how all of a sudden the black and white text became very color. It's in living color. Therefore, just as sin invaded the world through one man. You see, sin invaded the cosmos like a tsunami on the shores of a defenseless island. Have you ever seen one of those videos of a person standing in a hotel taking a video of the beach when the tsunami hits and it goes from a beautiful beach and in the next 20 seconds... Black. Black. Sin invaded our world like an army that descends on a defenseless nation. Like COVID-19, sin is an unwelcome guest. 
And what we need to see from this passage is its origin. We need to see that it all begins with one man, and his name is Adam. How bad is it? How bad is the the introduction of sin into the human race? The Heidelberg Catechism says it like this. This fall, that is the fall of sin, has so poisoned our nature that we are born sinners corrupt from conception on. You remember what King David said? In sin, I was conceived. The Westminster Confession of Faith, penned in 1647, says, from this original corruption, whereby we were utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. When you think about sin, never forget that we are not only sinners by nature, but we are sinners by choice. I remember I, I uttered that statement to a friend of mine in a church that we pastored in Oregon. I said simply, we are sinners by nature and choice. And I had a friend of mine come up to me and he said, you know, I, I have never heard it said that way before. You see, we're not only sinners because we are in Adam, we sin because we love it. Amen? If we didn't love it, we wouldn't do it. So we're sinners by nature and choice. Notice three very important highlights. Adam then bears the responsibility for sin because he is what theologians refer to as the covenant head. Now, all of a sudden, the legwork, the long introduction that we worked on together becomes very, very important. Why? For God charges Adam to do what? To work and to keep. To serve and to lead. Man is called to be a servant and a leader. And my question is this, for the men. What did Adam do in Genesis 3? He shirked his responsibility. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 and pose this question. Where in the world is Adam? We don't need to read it again, but in that exchange with, with Eve and the serpent, I remember being faced with this. It wasn't too many years ago. I'm reading through Genesis 3, and I, I kind of stopped and I went, whoa, whoa, hold, hold on, hold the bus. Where's Adam? And theologians are kind of all over the map. Some, some theologians think that he was, you know, kind of standing over here by the piano and, and watching things unfold. Some people think that he was out of the picture altogether. He was out working in the garden. It, it makes little difference to me whether he was standing close by or whether he was gone. The fact of the matter is Adam shirked his responsibility. He is silent. He fails to lead and serve. Instead of, and guys, listen to this, instead of exercising godly leadership, what does he do? He follows Eve who followed Satan. Did you catch that? 
What does he do? He shirks his responsibility. He's a coward. And instead of leading, instead of, instead of exerting that God-centered leadership, he follows his wife who follows the serpent. Here's a challenge for men this morning. Adam's failure to exercise godly leadership has been perpetuated through the ages. And it is ruining families. And it is destroying churches. I believe that now is the time for men to step up and lead in the home. I believe now is the time for men to step up and to lead in the church. It is time for bold leadership. This morning I listened to my, my morning message, which is my customary thing to do, and I listened to a message on the boldness of Martin Luther by Stephen Lawson. And that's exactly what Luther did. Luther was a bold reformer. He was a bold leader. He was a courageous man of God. Was he perfect? No. Was he flawless? No. Did he have a potty mouth sometimes? Yes. Sometimes he was gross. Maybe that's why I like him. I don't know. But I do know this. He was a man committed to the truth of the word of God. And so men, now is the time for bold leadership. Now is the time for biblical leadership. Now is the time for sacrificial leadership. We looked at this passage last week in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Back to Genesis 3 verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also did what? She gave some to her husband. The passage that entered my mind when I read that verse was Romans chapter 1 verses 22 and 23 where Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul continues in Romans 1, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What's Paul describing? He's describing paganism. Paganism. And I look around at our country, and I even look around at some churches, and I see paganism being not only promoted but paganism which is practiced there's a third observation i want you to see and it's one that has some amazing applications and that is there is a predictable pattern that i want you to see here once sin is in the books as it were adam and eve both adam and eve begin to engage in a certain kind of behavior that we are not only all familiar with, we have all practiced in our Christian lives. What do they do? First, they hide their sin. Notice that's the first thing that happens when Adam and Eve commit their sin. They, they hide their sin, which is exactly what we do all the time. 
You're engaged in some kind of a evil behavior. You're engaged in illegal activity. What do you do? You cover it up. You hide it. But they not only hide their sin, they, they hurl their sin. What do I mean? Adam blames Eve. God comes to Adam and he says, and basically, what's the deal? And Adam says, it was this chick you put in the garden. Right? He passes the buck to Eve, and what does Adam do? She says, it was this serpent you put in the garden. So Adam ultimately blames God who gave Eve to be his wife. One theologian says, sin is the disruption of a personal relationship. And it brings further disruption. Indeed, it is an attempt to overturn the order of creation. In God's order, he is the ultimate authority. Don't you wish people in America would understand that these days? God is the ultimate authority. The president of the United States is not the ultimate authority. The speaker of the house is not the ultimate authority. The attorney general is not the ultimate authority. And please remember, CNN and MSNBC is not the ultimate authority. Our governor is not the ultimate authority. It is God. But this theologian continues. He says this, Adam is subordinate authority to whom Eve is to be submissive. So think carefully now about what you see happening at a fevered pitch in our culture. We are witnessing before our very eyes like we've never seen it before. It's always been happening, but now we're seeing it almost in living color before our eyes. An attempt to overturn the order of creation. This is, this is cosmic treason. What's it look like? Men have abdicated their leadership roles. And this is what I hear. And I actually hear it more often than I would like to hear it. But pastor, you don't understand. My wife has the leadership gifts that I don't. I want to go work it and keep it, work it and keep it, work it and keep it, right? Men have abdicated their leadership roles. Husbands are now submitting to their wives. Moreover, gender distinctions, as you know, are being blurred and even obliterated. When Jarena and I got our flu shot yesterday and we had to fill out all the paperwork that you do, I was actually pretty encouraged. It said, are you a man? Are you a woman? There wasn't any choice. I mean, I've, I've seen forums where it's like, why are there 13 choices? What's going on here? There are two genders, male and female. Role distinctions are being fundamentally erased. Instead of serving and leading, men are cowering in their corners. The role of helpmate, moreover, for wives has been maligned and mocked. By the way, for the women in our congregation, the most beautiful thing that can be ascribed to you is this, that you are your husband's helpmate. You are your husband's helpmate glory in that, delight in that. 
There's other ways that the order of creation is being overturned. Instead of fleeing from homosexuality, our culture is embracing homosexuality. Instead of confronting homosexual sin, our culture is celebrating homosexual sin. All of a sudden, I'm starting to think, this message could get me in big trouble. I might as well just keep going. Instead of fleeing from transgenderism, our culture has not only accepted it, we are encouraging it. There's a little book that Gavin Peacock and Owen Strand published just, just several weeks ago. And the two authors say this, quote, Gender androgyny now represents the vanguard of modern culture while holding to any hard and fast understanding of maleness and femaleness seems increasingly ancient and discredited. Unquote. Instead of living according to God's mandate, his creation mandate, where men and women work in complementary relationships to God's glory, they pursue the path of neo-paganism. My friends, those are the two options. Pursue a path where the man leads and the woman submits to the authority of her husband and they work in complementarity or you pursue a path of neo-paganism. And it's happening right now, not only in our town and in our state and in our country, but it is happening in our churches. God help us. And may he have mercy. Strand and Peacock continue, together Adam and Eve or to have dominion over the animals. But in the story of the fall, in the story of the fall, the woman, that is Eve, submits to an animal. Everyone with me? The man submits to his wife, and both of them claim to be the judges of God's behavior. Close quote. It all begins with Adam. That is to say, sin begins with with one man. There's a second thing I want you to see, also in verse 12, that death came as a result of sin. You see that in verse 12, Paul says, therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. I want you to remember this, and this is something that I learned as a, probably a four-year-old, a five-year-old, that the wages of sin is death. You know what happened? Whether it was my parents or my Sunday school teacher or my, my group on Wednesday night I met with, I learned that verse in all of those contexts. I was being catechized. I was being catechized as a, as a child. I was being taught. I was being, I, I, I was being indoctrinated. That's a bad word for some people in our culture. We need, mom and dad, to indoctrinate our children. We need to catechize them. We need to remind them that the consequence of sin is death. Again, in Genesis, the Lord commanded the man, saying, Surely you may eat from every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely... For in the day you eat of it you shall surely... Okay, just want to make sure you're awake. You will die. Death, thanatos means physical death, spiritual death, 
an eternal death. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20 says, the soul who sins shall die. Mom and dad, that's what our children need to understand. The soul who sins shall die. I have literally had parents tell me, I don't want my child to be afraid of going to hell. What? I'm afraid to go to hell. You should be afraid to go to hell. Our children should be scared spitless to go to hell. You see, God would have been perfectly just to allow physical, spiritual, and eternal death to fall on the head of Adam and Eve when they committed that sin. But instead, he puts his final judgment. This is amazing. This is the God we serve. He puts his final judgment on the back burner. Isn't that something? The the very second that Eve ate that fruit, the very second that Adam ate that fruit, God would have been perfectly just to annihilate the man and the woman. But he puts his judgment on the back burner so that, listen, so that all of God's elect might be brought to repentance. Amen? 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is the trend, the, 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 the trajectory of the sin virus, that it begins with one man. Sin begins with one man, and death came as a result of sin. There's a third thing I want you to see also in verse 12, and that is that death spread, you remember that word I had you focus on, it spread to all men because all sinned. The word translated spread means to pass through or to literally penetrate. That is to say, death touches every human life. You don't need me to tell you this, but death does not negotiate with men. We have a president who sits in the Oval Office who wrote a book called The Art of the Deal. And whether you like him or don't like him, you have to admit this, he is a world-class negotiator. He knows how to craft a deal. Listen, when it comes to death, death does not negotiate with anyone. Death does not discriminate with men or women. Death impacts every human life. Now, Ken began our service with a kind of a game, an exercise, right? Not, a, not an exercise, a game. I want to continue that and ask you to kind of play along and play a game with me about COVID-19, the, this thing that is caught fire not only in America but all around the world. Raise your hand, and everyone has to play, right? Raise your hand if you know about or have heard about COVID-19. Raise your hand. If anyone's not raising their hand, then that's uh, just, you got to play it. Okay, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand raised if you know someone personally who has the virus or has had the virus. Keep your hand up and look around. Okay. Now, the third question I have for you is keep your hand raised if the virus has killed you. Look around. Pretty interesting. And I'm not making light of the virus. The virus has is, is really decimated people around the globe. But the point is this. While the virus has spread around the globe, it has not yet taken your life. Are you with me? It hasn't taken your life. 
the sin virus, the sin virus has spread all the way from Jason to Harry to Tom and Laura, back to Ryan and Daryl to my wife, back to Katie. It's really great to see you, Katie, by the way. We haven't talked in a long time. To, to the Nelson family, all the way to the front and all the way to me. There is no one who has escaped the path of the sin virus. Death has spread to all men because all sinned. We are not only, we, we are not only all aware of how sin, the sin virus has spread, each of us has received the death sentence because of it. Now, look back again at Romans chapter 5, verse 12, because I asked you to focus your attention on three verbs. You remember those verbs? Came and spread and sent. And as we close, I want to give you just a kind of a window into the Greek text for a moment that will help you understand this passage. Because each of these verbs, came, spread, and sent, is written in the aorist tense. Now, most of you, that doesn't mean anything. That's fine. It's written in the aorist tense. That is to say, these words are written in the past tense. Therefore, the whole human race... That's everyone from Jason to Maria and Marcus and the holders all the way around to me and every single person in God's world. It means that the whole human race is viewed as having sinned in Adam's one act. Isn't that something? This is the passage. We are viewed as having sinned past tense in Adam's one act. And so sin begins with one man. Death comes as a result of sin and death spread to all men because they all sinned. This is the trajectory of the sin virus. Now as we continue to live in this crazy season during COVID-19 and all the other things, I am struck by the gravity of the virus. Speaking of COVID-19, the great question, and you've heard this on the news, you've read it online, you've talked about it in personal conversations, the great quest around the world is how do we flatten the curve? How do we flatten the curve? And we have gone to, to great lengths to flatten the curve in the hopes of defeating the virus. We are also eagerly anticipating a vaccine that will put the virus to bed once and for all. Now, I realize in a crowd this size, by the way, this is the biggest crowd we've had since before the virus. It's, praise the Lord for that. I realize that everyone has an opinion on the virus. Everyone has an opinion on how we should flatten the curve. Lockdowns, quarantines, social distancing, closing businesses. I have my own opinion on that one. Putting large gatherings on hold, including churches, face masks, ad, infin ad infinitum, ad nauseum. I was reminded about the gravity of the COVID-19 crisis, and I was reminded of the gravity of the, of the sin virus when I went to REI just a few days ago to purchase some hiking boots. By the way, I love going to REI. It's just like going to a candy store, right? 
You go to REI and you walk up and there's this big sign that says, here's all the things that you have to be and have to do or haven't done in order to walk into the store. All right, just like most any other store. Thankfully, I checked all those off the box and was able to walk into the store and I made a beeline back to the shoe section. I got to the shoe section and there was kind of a barricade and some kind of, kind of ropes put up and another sign that said, we can only allow a certain number of people in the shoe section. Please wait for an associate to greet you. So I waited patiently, twiddled my thumbs and waited and waited, waited. Finally, a, a very nice gentleman came and he said, can I help you? And I said, yes, yes, you may. You got that? And walked in and he said, what are you looking for? I told him I was looking for some hiking boots. And so, he, by the way, he's standing about, if, if it's Chris, we're about this far away and we both have masks on. He's like, and you want what? I said, I want hiking boots. You want what? I said, I want, oh, I'm getting frustrated, right? Like, hiking boots. Okay, he, he recommends a pair of hiking boots and what size would you like, sir? And it, it's, it's getting a little weird for me, right? I said, I'm looking for size 12 and a half. He said, just one moment. And he, you know how you do when you go to the shoe store? You, you run this drill. Comes back. And we're keeping our social distance, right? And I'm ready for him to come to deliver this beautiful pair of hiking boots. And what happened next, I knew had to be a part of a sermon illustration is he literally got down on one knee and went. <clears throat> That's what I did too, but I laughed on the inside. I was like. <laughs> as funny as that story is, I'll never forget it, but as funny as that story is, here's what it taught me. People are scared to death. Do you know what it means by drinking the Kool-Aid? We have got a nation filled with people who are scared to death. And I want to be careful this morning because I know we have people all over the map. And so I don't intentionally offend anyone, but I, I want you to remember this, that if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear, Right? It is possible that you or me could contract COVID-19. It is possible that if we get that virus, and I've talked to people who have endured that, they say, you don't want it. It is not fun. But it's possible we could get it. It's possible we would get sick. It's possible that we could get really sick. In fact, the virus could even kill us. It is a very real thing. And we need to be wise during these days. However, for our purposes today, this is not a health class. This is theology class. I want you to remember that the sin virus, the sin virus will kill everyone in its path. The sin virus will condemn you to hell for all eternity. Yet, here's what we discover in, in, in a world where a pair of hiking boots is shimmied along the floor out of fear of COVID-19, we live in a world where very few people are concerned about being vaccinated for the sin 
virus. The only thing that can flatten the curve of the sin virus is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the cross of Jesus Christ not only flattens the curve, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ obliterates the curve. Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is in Jesus. So you can't purchase a cure for the sin virus. You can't work for a cure for the sin virus. You can't even earn a cure for the sin virus. Your only hope is to receive God's gift of love where he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to live the life that none of us could ever live and die a death that we all deserve to die. And so my plea this morning is if you are not a Christian, I plead with you to to turn from your sin and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. My hope is that you will leave free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, that the sin virus will no longer be a part of your life. For Christians, I encourage you today, and the vast majority of you are followers of Jesus, I encourage you to to bask in the grace of God, which is yours in Christ, that you would cry out as we will sing in a moment, thank you for saving me. And as Calvin concluded nearly every sermon he ever preached in the 16th century, and now let us bow before the majesty of our gracious God. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, thank you for helping us to understand the sin virus. Lord, it is serious, it is sobering, and we have come face to face with how apart from grace, the sin virus will not only kill us, it will lead to eternal condemnation. We'll we'll, we'll bear the the wrath of God for all eternity. And so for those who are here today and have never heard about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, may they come to the place where they turn from their sin and turn to the Lord Jesus and realize there's nothing they can do to, to purchase a vaccine. They just simply need to trust in Jesus, who is their final payment on Calvary's cross for their sin. For the rest of us, Lord, those of us who are following Christ, may we rejoice in our salvation today. May we cry out with the writer of the song who said, thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as was mentioned earlier,